Hello and welcome to Open YTO, a podcast that aims to share the experiences of QT BIPOC youth and navigating the GTA sexual health and wellness resources. Through storytelling and dialogue, this podcast hopes to highlight the lack of information, the barriers to accessibility, and the lack of representation of QT BIPOC communities in our mainstream healthcare system. Our guest for today is the lovely Luna. Luna is a sex and pleasure educator with over 10 years of experience teaching sexual health and empowerment workshops. She celebrates body confidence, self-adoration, and building shame-free pleasure in and out of the bedroom. She teaches a wide range of topics, including threesomes, BDSM, butt stuff, and sexual confidence. Her advice on sex and kinks has been featured in Playboy, Cosmo, Vice, Women's Health, and Pornhub. Luna has created Peg the Patriarchy and Meditate, Medicate, Masturbate, brands as part of her line of sex positive and feminist merchandise. So everyone, I'd like you to welcome Luna. Hey, thank you so much for that warm welcome. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for coming onto our podcast. Um, Yeah, very impressive list. The fact that you've been featured in like Playboy, Cosmos and Women's Health, like just boggles my mind. (laughs) Because I'm like, that's, I would imagine that those, okay, I'm not familiar with how uh, easy it is to get featured into those magazines, but I expect it to be quite difficult. So yay, good job, accomplishments. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> All right, um, so I know that I've read a little bit about your background, but I certainly can't do it as much justice as you would. Um, so if there's anything that you'd like to expand upon, any um, projects that you're currently uh, working on or um, yeah, projects that you think folks might be interested in learning about or learning more about from you? Sure. Yeah. Um, I often get asked, you know, how did I get into like sex ed? And yeah, how did I end up in Cosmo? Yeah. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about that journey. I, I love I love talking about it because um, it it really responds to a lot of the gaps that we're going to talk about today. I think in in sexual health, and I started off in health promotion, and so I was um, after university. I, I went to Eastern and Southern Africa, and I was working with HIV reduction and management, and so very much from a epidemiology kind of like public health disease reduction modality. And then I came back and was working in community health centers and then eventually for Toronto Public Health. And um, in every situation, you know, I could talk until I was like blue in the face about (laughs) condoms, right? Like condoms, condoms, condoms. Mm -hmm. And people were still like, yeah, but like, how do I get her to eat my ass? Or how do I get him to do this? And so Mm -hmm. like, there's this huge gap in talking about how pleasure is also a part of sexual health. And in fact, it's, it's kind of critical that we talk about pleasure. So when we talk about things like consent or disease or, or any of these things, and that's the skill that that we were missing the most from our high school sex ed that most of us got that was focused on like reproduction, reproductive anatomy, and not necessarily Mm -hmm. anything about pleasure. So yeah, so that's how I that's how I got started. And I decided I was like, oh, this is really limiting and boring to just talk about condoms all the time. (laughs) And so luckily in Toronto, we've got these amazing sex positive feminist uh, small businesses that are sex toy shops. Um, And I started teaching classes at Good For Her in 2015. And uh, from there, I was like, whoa, people really want to learn and have spaces for these discussions around pleasure. And, you know, we're talking to our friends who don't know that much and we're all confused or Mm -hmm. we're watching porn and porn is performance and it's not necessarily personal, right? Yeah. So um, I'm just, I feel so lucky to be able to have created like a, a business within this um, kind of gap that we're not really getting from our traditional sources of sex ed. Yeah, I, I like how you touch upon um, our knowledge, or for some folks, some of their knowledge comes from what they see on like Pornhub and porn. And you're right that it is um, performative. Do you find that there's any kind of misconceptions that folks have from the experience or the the visuals that they've seen that they kind of carry over? Yeah, yeah, it's such a good question. Um, there's definitely, there's a, I'd say there's like three big misconceptions. Like one is representation. So, I mean, most mainstream porn is geared towards like cisgendered, heterosexual white men. And so it's a, it's a proliferation of their fantasies. So we don't see a lot mm-hmm. of queerness. We don't see, if we see queerness, if we see diverse bodies, if we see different ethnicities, it's often fetishized 
or yes. limited to like this narrow, like, oh, like if you're Asian, you have to be submissive. If you're black, you have to be this. And so it really distorts, I think, where we see ourselves belonging in our in our fantasies. Um, and then porn also has this idea. I mean, it's very sensationalized. It has to show things that are extreme and exciting because it's, it's a movie. And so a lot of times then we think that that's how sex has to be. But we forget that because they're actors, because they're performers, you know, they've had conversations around consent, what's going to happen in the scene. And then it looks for us like we're just watching this universally consented, you know, experience where people don't have to talk about their needs and desires. They don't have to mm-hmm. negotiate condoms. They don't have to, someone fell off the bed and feel, feel awkward. Like we don't see all those moments that are actually real bodies, real sex, you know, real awkwardness. Uh, so we don't know then how to navigate those moments when they happen for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 yeah, I, I feel you on the, the fetishizing, fetishizing aspect of it um, because uh, it's the whole concept of like, I have friends who are cisgendered white males and they obsess over finding an Asian girlfriend because that's what they see on Pornhub and it's something that attracts them and excites them. It's like, no, let's let's move away from, from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Um, no. But the fact, like, whenever it is a case of, like, a diverse body, it's still surrounded with, like, white males. It's never two diverse bodies interacting. Um, it's typically a single one and then with the, yeah, so playing to the, the white male fantasy. Yeah. Yeah, you're so right. Um, I run a, a race and kink series with another educator where we have bi-weekly discussions around the intersections between race, racism, and kink. And um, we were talking about this racial fetishization on our last episode and how the racial fetishization, for example, on Pornhub is very much about black and white as if like yes. those were the only two people that could like do racial fetishization, right? Like myself mm-hmm. and like, you know, uh, someone else could do racial fetishization that's not necessarily, you know, white. And so it really displaces our desire. It gives it to somebody else. And and so mm-hmm. we don't get to feel like we belong, like we own it. Um, we can have racial fantasies too, but when it comes into a place where it hasn't originated from our ideas, our bodies, and it's intended to serve somebody else's desire, Desire, it, it actually just makes us feel even more disempowered, more dehumanized, um, and like we don't have this sense of belonging in in sexiness, in kinky, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I think that's one aspect that when folks see themselves in those types of portrayals, they think like, oh, I need to act in this manner, and then when it doesn't work for them, which it shouldn't, yeah, they definitely feel disempowered because they're trying to fit into... Um, a narrative that doesn't belong to them or that's not meant for them. Yeah. It's essentially harmful. And that leads to more the fact like, okay, well, maybe I don't like sex. Maybe sex isn't for me because I don't fit into this role. When in reality, it's you don't know, you're trying to fit along with what everyone else thinks you should fit along with rather than um, taking on that experimentation and that role for yourself and figuring out, Hey, I like this. I don't like this. I'm into this. I'm not into this. Um, having those kind of conversations. For everyone who's listening, Luna is like aggressively nodding. Aggressively nodding, yeah. <laughs> I think I think you lay it out so well with the how you're kind of framing it that it it just like steals from us this belief that we can be sexy or that we can be you know empowered in ways that feel really good about our pleasure, and um, that leads us to make you know, difficult choices around our our sex and sexuality. We might choose partners that are less than our standards because we think that this is all that we can get. We might be choosing partners because of social power. So if we date white, if we date tall, if we date big, then those are all things that are valued by conventional beauty and conventional beauty is rooted in white supremacy and patriarchy. So, you know, we we can't win at that anyways. And yet we're kind of caught in, in trying to get never come from that system. And so we we really need to start to even unpack our own standards of attractiveness and who are we dating and who are we swiping on and who are we attracted to. And if it is, you know, we have preferences, we all can have preferences, but if you have preferences that are unexamined, they are likely just preferences that porn has given you. And so mm-hmm. why limit yourself to thinking there's this like narrow 
kind of crevice where you and I can feel attractive when really it's much bigger than that. We know that, yeah, Beyonce is attractive, but then like Lizzo came along. And, mm -hmm. and so we haven't seen bodies like Lizzo. And all of a sudden, like we're, we're having these debates around, oh, you know, her health or this. Or, and and you know, no one's asking about Beyonce's health. Right. Like no, no one's asking about, um, you know, thin people's health or, or average mm -hmm. size people's health. So we make a lot of assumptions on bodies that aren't represented as sexy. Exactly. And society definitely is at fault for kind of shaping our perspective on what traditional beauty or what beauty is expected to look like, what um, sexual relationships are meant to look like um, for anyone who is kind of discovering themselves and kind of on their sexual journey, do you have any recommendations or tips for them as to how to get started? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's really important that you um, you really look into the, if you are watching porn, if, if you are consuming porn, uh, first of all, pay for your porn because they're sex workers and we want to honor the fact that this is work. Um, and I know society hasn't set that up, but like people are working. But um, we, we want to look at if we are watching porn, are you only watching porn of a particular type of body? Like what would it, what would it feel like if you switched up the type of porn and even looked at bodies that looked more like yours or bodies that looked less conventionally attractive. So look at, you know, the kind of get out of the categories that Pornhub served you up. Um, and then the other thing that, that folks can do if they're just starting out and, and really wanting to get into what might turn them on, what their desires are, is also it broadening your source of erotic input. And so if you're, mm -hmm. you are someone that watches porn, you know, maybe try reading erotica because erotica really gives a different um, stimulation to your imagination and it allows you to create the images versus just being served an aesthetic that is largely harmful. Um, and self-pleasure, like I, I think self-pleasure, whether it's through masturbation, whether it's through even more sensual pleasure, like discovering parts of your, your body and what kind of touch feels good. Um, masturbation is an awesome opportunity to be really selfish and to like see what fantasies feel good for you, what parts of your body, what speed, you know, you don't necessarily have to even get to orgasm. That's not, it doesn't have to be a goal. We're just trying to figure out what do I need to know about my body and my pleasure so that when I'm with other people, I can also say, oh yeah, like a little bit faster or a little bit slower. We need the language of our own body in order to communicate when we're with other bodies. Mm hmm yeah, I like that the having that communication, that language. Um, you mentioned earlier that when um, professionals are filming porn, they what we don't really see on screen is them setting up uh, their boundaries, their safe words, going over what um, like going over the consent practices uh, for someone who does enter uh, a relationship and it comes time to talk about sex. Um, how should they have that conversation with their partner? Yeah, yeah. This is also what we didn't learn in school, right? <laughs> like, Definitely not. It was just, here is a male reproductive system. Here is a female reproductive system. Abstinence, condoms, spermicide, that's it. Birth wow. control, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. I, I went to Catholic school, so I just learned how to have like babies. Like I just learned how to get pregnant. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't even see a condom when I was in school. So it it was, it's really for a lot of us, um, it, it, it can be tough. And so if you feel intimidated around consent and you feel confused around how or you feel shy about talking up or speaking up about what you like and what you don't like, that's totally understandable. And uh, what we want to do is actually create a culture of, of consent where we're encouraging each other and giving each other permission to talk about things. And you can have the conversations before. So before you get sexy, you can kind of say, hey, like these are the things that really turn me on. These are the things I'm, I'm really into. These are the things I'm curious about. And so if, if you've never had sex before, you have limited experience, that doesn't mean that you don't know what your body likes. You know, you might really like cuddles. You might like affection. You might like the idea of spanking. So even stuff that you haven't experienced, you can still kind of put out there and just say, yeah, I don't have a lot of experience about this, but I'm kind of curious about it. So we might need to take it slow. The other thing is, is that consent doesn't end in the, the one conversation that you have before you, know, you mm -hmm. have sex. Um, I think a lot of the consent education I see going around um, makes it sound like a checklist or like you're yeah. supposed to, right? Like you're just supposed it's to like kind just, of. 
before and that's it. Like nothing, it's, it's treated as if it isn't ongoing. Yes, exactly. And, um, you know, those conversations beforehand obviously can include things like what barriers do you feel comfortable using? You know, what do you need to feel emotionally and physically safe in this experience? And ongoing, it actually requires, it's challenging because it requires us to be really present in the moment Mm -hmm. and really taking in not just that I'm getting the sex from you, but that I want to give you the kind of pleasure that you want. It might be different than what I want, but I want to focus on that I'm giving you that. And a lot of times in porn, it just looks like someone comes in and like they give it to someone and then that just happens to be what that person wanted. So we get confused about, you know, someone goes quiet or we're not sure what's happening and we need to normalize just checking in, being like, oh babe, like do you need something or do you want to take a break? Or even saying that ourselves, like something's going on for me, can we just slow things down or can we just like take a break and cuddle and so being able to speak up about our yes and our no is part of that ongoing consent Mm -hmm. yeah and it's definitely something that we aren't really educated about it's not conversations that schools are comfortable with teaching us it's not conversations that you can necessarily bring up with your mom and dad (laughs) because depending on what kind of household you live in that might not be a safe conversation to have Um, And then if you turn to your friends, who knows, they might also be in a similar situation as you where they're like, I don't know about these things. And they also probably have similar knowledge that stems from them watching porn. And that's already uh, inaccurate. Um, But if schools were to approach the conversation about sex ed, um, I know that we've mentioned that they don't really talk about um, consent, but are there any other topics that you feel like they should cover in their sex ed curriculum? Yeah, I think um, our sex ed is so limited to disease reduction. So if this part touches this part, then this is going to happen. And and so it doesn't really talk about, well, you know, how do you discover your desires? So I think they should be teaching masturbation. I think that it shouldn't just be kind of like, well, if you don't have a partner, you can touch yourself. It should be masturbation is a way of exploring your body and owning what feels good and what doesn't feel good. Um, I think it would be great if they taught skills around uh, emotional intelligence during sex. So this is what it Mm. might look like for someone if they're um you know what is a maybe isn't a yes right like a maybe is a no so if it's um kind of really like focusing on helping us develop those skills to be more intuitive and mindful when we're we're having sex and those are basic communication skills that i think we need to be taught as like socialized people <laughs> and like um i also think there the a lot of our sex ed is very even if it's we mention LGBT people or queer people and trans people, it's still very cisgendered and very heteronormative assumptive. Yes. So like ultimately we're not actually talking about queer experiences unless we talk about like identity, but like queer people have sex differently than, you know, um, heterosexual people. And also all of us could benefit from having a sex ed that didn't focus just on penetration. Not everyone likes to be penetrated, no matter what holes you have or what things you have. So, you know, (laughs) really expanding the idea of sex beyond orgasm, but like as a way, um, in the same way we exercise our body and have physical activity, sex is a way of um, um, engaging our erotic selves. Whether you have sex or you don't, it's still that those feelings are are part of our erotic package. Erotic package, I like that. I like that you touch upon as well the fact that like I would have never thought to incorporate like an emotional intelligent element into sex ed but now that you you've said it out loud yeah like it makes sense for you to figure out um and actually how to build those communication skills because I think society just takes for granted that oh you're a human you naturally have communication skills built within you but it's like no there there are some folks that like are great at communicating and they're open but there are some that a little bit um are shy and we need to find different ways for them to communicate with us about how they're feeling and what they would like. Yeah. It's not just you need to speak. It's like, no, there are other forms of communication as well. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And how to handle feelings of rejection. So someone tells mm-hmm. me they don't like something, they don't want something. Um, sexually confident people, we don't, we don't really care, like rejection or favor. It's not about me being the best at the thing. It's about me creating conditions with you that make us both feel emotionally and physically safe. And so when that ego is kind of, when we don't teach that ego anymore about you coming here and you're making someone come and you're doing this thing, like, no, like you're, you're creating an experience together, whether it's one night or 10,000 nights, it doesn't matter. This is, we don't have to treat people casually just because we're having casual sex. Um, And I think it would be great to see communication skills also extend into what you mentioned, like this nonverbal communication. And so I'll see when it's uncomfortable and we just kind of, we see porn where people are uncomfortable and it's eroticized. And so we get confused. We think that pain and discomfort has to come with sex. It's, it's definitely not something that is built into sex that it has to necessarily be rough and painful and going hard at it. It's like, no, there can be sensual and slow and there's already pleasure in that for some folks. Different, what was, what was the phrase? Different strokes for different folks? Yeah. I think it was the catchphrase. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Literally. But, mm, um, another kind of question that I haven't... Um, in like the back of my mind, I know that for some folks, if they are getting into a relationship and um, their partner discloses to them like, hey, I'm trans um, and I have like specific um, expectations or specific things for my body, um, for someone who's like entering that kind of relationship or that kind of like um, relationship that's not really, that's like outside like a heterosexual relationship, um, what would you say to folks who are kind of entering that and kind of the supports or um, advice that you give for, for them? Yeah, that's a great question too. I think um, I think it's really important that we we listen to our our trans partners and um, trans people don't always have to um, disclose like why they want something or you know they don't if they want to go into their their history or talk about trauma that's fine. But it's also okay for them to just say I like this or call my genitals this or you know this is how I feel most comfortable. And so I think as as cis partners that we need to be really just mindful and accepting and empathetic in that and grateful that considering what um, our partner's um, pleasure would actually look like and how we can create that. I also think as this people, we need to do our homework. And so we can't rely on our trans partners to educate us about all the things about all trans people everywhere. And so like doing your, your best, I mean, there's a wealth of resources created by trans people. And so trans voices are available out there. Um, one of my favorite uh, books is called Fucking Trans Women. And it's available like as a download. I think it's like 10 bucks or something. It's written by a, a trans person. And, um, you know, really like investing in in doing our best to not only learn about trans people, but learn about where cis privilege has distorted our ability um, to open up to like other perspectives. Like we just normalize that, oh, well, this is normal. And now this trans person is you know, abnormal from what we usually have. But it's like, no, we're trying to be more expansive around um, what I've been taught is normal and the world is set up for me as a cis person, but it, it is not set up for, for gender expansive and gender diverse people. And so recognizing how that might create a, a power imbalance within your relationship as well is really important. Yeah. Do you see any ways that we can better represent or better integrate um, QT BIPOC communities in our sexual education? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I think. Deep question. Yeah, I know. (laughs) That's a huge one. But I feel like every time it comes up, especially from uh public health kind of modalities where like they're putting out pamphlets and they're like cool like throw a beige person like on the pamphlet and Mm -hmm. or they want to go to the community and be like tell us how we can be culturally competent and so it's not always about like cultural competence it's really about dismantling a system that normalizes some people's sexual experiences and you know creates margins for other people's sexual experiences so there's some great organizations doing uh work that's rooted in ethnic specific communities like the Black Coalition Coalition for AIDS Prevention. Um, a lot of it is focused around uh, AIDS um, 
um, and HIV kind of information because that's where the money and the funding was for these organizations to do the work. But inherently, they're also doing it within uh, the the communities that that they're serving. They have to kind of provide other sexual services if they're talking about. Um, uh, HIV and AIDS. So there's there's a few. There's Black Cap, there's ACATS um, and ASAP. So both are, are targeting Asian and South Asian communities. And and so we we can see and learn from the groups that are already working in those communities and ask them. You know, they've already developed this like leadership and trust and communication and asking, you know, what are the resources that are needed? Um, I also think that that for QP BIPOC, um, we don't get enough of an opportunity to really kind of have spaces where we can have these conversations. So I'm so glad that that you all exist and you're doing this podcast and you're doing this work um, because we I've seen through our, our race and kink biweekly discussion series that people just want a space to be validated. They want to be like, yeah, that was white nonsense or yeah, that was like cis bullshit or that was, you know, my, I wasn't included here as in this disability campaign, even though we're it's talking about something that represents my body. You know, so um, it, it, I think as we strengthen our voices and validate each other, then we'll come up with really creative solutions. And definitely coming together as a community and sharing our different experiences and different backgrounds um, can help us with creating a, a space for us to exist and to be recognized and to be treated equally in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, even amongst like my peers who are our sex educators, um, there's amazing QT BIPOC educators, there's amazing black educators. And we we often see white educators, white cis women who are like leading the path yeah. of like sex educators, right? Like they're the ones who get like really big brand kind of stuff. They're the ones who are featured. They're the ones who don't get their Instagram accounts disabled like I did. So <laughs> not bitter. But, you know. Not at all. <laughs> So we as, as we also have to start like supporting the people who are leading stuff. And so follow, you know, folks that are smaller, but that are really trying to dig into issues for communities like ours. I wonder why, if it's just like an image thing that a lot of the sex educators are seen as like the the, the white females. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it partly partly is an image thing, and uh, partly sexual freedom has really largely been offered only to white bodies, um, and that for QT BIPOC bodies, like we still have a process of decolonizing our sexuality and like really reclaiming the ideas. You know, a lot of homophobia was not rooted in our ancestral. Um, experiences, a lot of gender diversity already existed with our ancestors and, and this just kind of got colonized. And so we're, we're now like setting a lot of that stuff. Um, but it's a, it's a process. It's also a look. It's also kind of what we talked about with um, representation in that people want to look at who they consider and have been told is sexy. And so as mm. white female, you know, we see cis white females being worshipped as, you know, sexy, like, all day, every day. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah, definitely. Their their bodies are plastered all over subway ads yeah. and media and newspapers. Exactly. At that point, it just becomes like, it's it's underwhelming. Like you see that and you're like, there's, it's just another, another body. Like there's nothing like, give me, give me some color. Give me some melanin. <laughs> yes. Give me some melanin. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I think that's also like that creates more of a further divide between um, QT BIPOC folks because they see that like, hey, I'm not represented here. This space isn't for me. So that causes them to like further repress and repress and not feel comfortable with having those conversations um, publicly or with their friends or with their peers. It's everything in society is telling them that, no, these aren't conversations. This is not a space for you, essentially. Yes. So anyone who is like, anytime I see um, a diverse body on the cover of a magazine or someone from my background on the cover of a magazine, I'm like, yes, you get it. You like, you're going to pioneer and you're going to lead us in this uh, revolution, essentially. Yes, yes. And I think that all of us have access to do that for other people. I think you being in your body and like your team being in their bodies, the fact that we're starting to really 
own this and stand up for things, it's inspiring to other people. And I didn't realize that at first, that when you stand in your own power, um, you know, people really also feel permission to stand in their own power. And uh, when I first started teaching and when I was posting on Instagram and I had people writing and saying, oh, like, I, I like your dresses or I like whatever. And or, you know, you're playing with your belly and, and that made me feel like my belly was OK. Uh, and and I didn't realize that that it had that kind of projective effect that that your sunshine like once you you start to embrace your light like it it encourages other people to light up. Mm-hmm. I know that you are a public figure and that your Instagram and your social media is open for folks to comment and hopefully most folks are positive with their comments right they're celebrating you and your body positivity. Um, have you received? any kind of negative comments. And for anyone who kind of has like that person in their life that is shaming them for their particular um, partner that they've selected or their particular kinks, how would they um, speak out against someone who's coming at them from a place of negativity? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's really, it's tough. I mean, um, I think I, I've had to develop this sort of a, a thicker skin um, and really, but it's, it's been in a way that's been, it served me. It's not that it doesn't affect me. I kind of look at mm-hmm. comments. I get sent dick pics all the time. I get, you know, um, so there's different levels of, of, um, negativity. There's, there's like crossing mm-hmm. my boundaries. There's over-sexualizing me. There's thinking that you, that because I talk about this stuff, then I want to have sex with everybody on Instagram. Um, I think there's, uh, some of it's scary. Some of it's, um, you know, it, 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 it can feel like it's threatening my personal private safety. Um, but I think that that when if someone's kind of feeling like, you know, I, I'm sort of suffering under this, this systemic violence of you have to look a certain way, you have to have a certain partner, like all that is like really violent on, on our um, abilities to connect with people. And if you're getting that, I think one of the things that's helped me is that we kind of, we have to unhitch our wagon from external validation. You got to like take that hitch off and, and say that I need to anchor myself in standards that are not about white supremacist patriarchy, right? So any beauty standard around the diet industry, makeup industry, health and fitness industry, all these things are, are not serving us, but they keep us in a place of feeling not enough. And so it, the more that we can start to feel enough and that if you were to, you know, tell me, oh, Luna, like you're this or you're whatever, that, that I, that may still hurt me, but that I've created a, a some a inside of myself where I can be like, let me check this assumption. Am I actually an ugly piece of garbage? And I'll be like, no, you know, Hannah thinks so, but no. So there's, <laughs> I know Hannah doesn't, but like. <laughs> Hannah is nodding her head. <laughs> Yeah. Or sorry, Hannah's like nodding her head from left to right. Yeah. Um, and so it's really important to have those daily practices, like to meet your own eyes in the mirror every day and give yourself something positive. Give yourself permission to feel cute. You know, choose partners that are worthy of you. And when we raise our standards, we do have less partners. I definitely have less partners now that are raised my standards, but I have better quality. I get nourishing experiences. And even if I'm disappointed, I don't necessarily get devastated. It doesn't attack my self-worth. Yeah, I think, and I felt this too, society thinks like, oh, you need to be in a relationship with someone at all times and that you can't love yourself on your own terms, um, that you need someone else to love you or you need to give your love to someone else when really at the end of the day, we all need, just need to be practicing self-love and we shouldn't be uh, rushing folks to get into a relationship or to get married, for example. Um, let folks decide how they want to live their life and how uh, they, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> no, but I get it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it's like we need to let go of these like preconditions for how you get love success companionship like it doesn't have to look one way mm, yeah yeah and then definitely doesn't need to like marriage doesn't need to be the end goal for all relationships right you can have uh common law relationships yep. i believe is the term yeah um and that can be good for some folks or you can just simply be like significant others partners for the rest of your life and that's as far as you need to take it yeah yeah. Oh, I love that you said that because I, I think there's 
that's a big problem for when we start to feel sort of desperate to like get to the milestone of like marriage or relationship. And we want it to look like rom-coms on TV. And it doesn't, you know, like it doesn't look like that. And I think when we build a relationship to ourself first, and then you're in relationship with yourself, and then you're going to get into relationship with somebody else. It's it's a lot easier to be more authentic in that relationship. I mean, lots of us lose ourselves in relationships. Yeah, because we're trying to fulfill society's needs, our ex, what we think our partner needs, rather than filling our needs first, and then letting someone come into our bubble. Exactly. So self-exploration, vital, key, key for the day. Yes. (laughs) I know that like a lot of uh, campaigns, they always emphasize love yourself and it's love yourself physically. It's usually centered around loving yourself like physically and your personality, but it's also like loving yourself sexually too and what you, your body can offer, provide you things that you can take pleasure in in your own body as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's so important because we're all, you know, we're all aging. So like we're all like our bodies are changing or you Mm -hmm. go through pregnancy or surgery or menopause or, you know, a chronic illness or um, your body may just change. And and so the more that we can build acceptance and tenderness and self-compassion for these bodies, these bodies, my appearance is, is the least interesting thing about me. Yet society has told me it is the most, you know, important thing that I need to spend hours every day, you know, focusing on and thinking about and decorating. And when we we do those things, if you want to change your body, if you want to decorate your body, if you want to sexualize your body, if you do that from an intention of, oh yeah, like I'm celebrating myself or I'm doing this because it's fun or because mm-hmm. I like how it looks. If we're doing it because we're trying to fit into standards of appropriateness, if we're doing it because we're trying to please other people or be more acceptable, then that becomes problematic because that's where that that hit to somebody else's wagon comes is that you know we're we're now my self-worth is tied to how much you accept that I've performed the beauty that is acceptable to you right I'm just like trying to let it all sink in yeah, right? a lot of this yeah. a lot of this conversation like I have not had genuine and open conversations about pleasure and sex right because that's not expected of, of someone from my background right it's very much of a, a place of you repress and you repress and you save it for marriage kind of uh, mentality when I think that's more harmful. The fact that you repress and all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're expected to get into a relationship with this person and you're expected to uh, have sex and to procreate and those kind of things. But because like, for example, I've repressed all my life, I have no idea even how to approach or have those conversations with my partner in that stage. And I'm, and I would defer to their knowledge because I would assume, oh, they know more than me. But in in actuality, they might not, or I'm just making a false assumption. And that's like putting myself into a submissive state and a place where I'll feel like powerless, that I can't speak out or to actually vocalize what I want and what I expect out of this relationship in a sexual manner. Yeah. Oh, that's so honest. That's so, I think that's the truth for many people. Um, And I think having experience doesn't necessarily mean having skill. And so like sexual skill, um, all of us need to learn sex skills. It's it's not a given, but our society kind of tells us, well, no, it's just your body. You just know what to do. But it's not not true. (laughs) If everyone knew what to do, we wouldn't be having issues in society. We'd (laughs) be perfect beings, but we're not. We're, we're, We're human beings. We're not perfect beings. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely having those conversations and like, I feel like with, as society progresses, it gets a little bit better because we're learning from not so much the mistakes, but the conversations that the older generation doesn't have. Um, And we're learning that those are harmful and those are not beneficial to us in any kind of state. So with every new generation, I feel like it's getting a little bit more inclusive. It's getting a little bit more um, of an open space where you can talk about and have these open discussions and dialogue about like sex. Like take, for example, mental health, right? Decades ago, no one would be talking about mental health. Um, and then now it's, it's you see workplaces kind of taking into account, right? T- uh, allowing for time off for mental health or wellness days. Um, and we see that there are 
we've made strides in that aspect of health, but one area that's kind of lacking still is sexual health, which is the reason why we've taken this topic as our podcast, because we want to shed more light on like, hey, no, sexual health is also part of health. And it's an area that we need to discuss and be discreet about and be open about, to be open and to be inclusive about. I'm not yeah. with words. <laughs> no, you are. That was, yeah, that's it. Open and inclusive. That's what, I mean, it would be amazing if, you know, your body was considered in all of its parts when we're engaging with like medical system. I mean, even if you've ever gone to a gynecologist or a proctologist, like anyone dealing with your genitals, um, they don't necessarily know anything about like, like, pleasure-based anatomy. And and so they're just still focused on like, even though these are the parts that you do the sex with, it's like they're still just focused on their function for reproduction or for, you know, kind of other functions of the body. There's this big sex negativity. Um, and also that we we desexualize bodies that are disabled. We desexualize bodies that are dealing with chronic illnesses. We desexualize bodies that are, um, you know, pregnant. We desexualize like all kinds of um bodies and and really like our sexuality may change and it, it mm -hmm. our relation to it may change but it's still ever present exactly exactly i kind of want to flip the switch a little bit i know that we talked about sexual exploration and pleasure um i know that you are well versed in sex toys mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for any folks who are considering going that route for, for pleasure, um, do you have any suggestions on how they can have a conversation about like, hey, let's bring sex toys into the bedroom? Or like, how would one even go about uh, getting over that like mental hurdle of like entering a sex shop? Yeah, yeah, those are both good questions. I think um, when you're if you're thinking about buying sex toys, please don't buy your sex toys from Amazon. Because I mean, <laughs> why I mean, was <laughs> Amazon done wrong? So there's there's very little. Even though these toys go inside of our bodies, sometimes there's very little regulation around sex toys. And oh, so okay. Amazon, you know, and you could like buy a bunch of sex toys and set up a shop on Amazon and start selling them. And if you decide to take returns and then resell those sex toys, you can do that. So there's no quality control around like, are you getting used toys? Are you getting toys that are actually safe? People have been burned from like motors and like things mm -hmm. like that, like it's just not regulated. So if you are shopping for sex toys, I mean, we're lucky we're in Toronto, but in lots of other, all these shops have online shops. So it's, it's great, um, but good for her and come as you are to local shops and they're feminist sex positive shops. So that means they're only carrying products that are safe for your body they're only carrying products that are, um, you know, good quality and that are um, also like they carry lots of things that are gender inclusive. So for especially for trans people, um, sometimes sex toys are, are not necessarily made for what they want to do with their bodies. And so mm -hmm. the, both shops carry options for all genders. Um, all sex toys can actually almost be used on like everybody's body, even though they're marketed for like men or for women. Yeah. Um, and you want to also look for, you're making sure that you're buying toys that are made of medical grade um, silicone or at the very least silicone. If anything says rubber or jelly in it, don't buy it. It's not, it's hard, too hard to clean because it's porous. So the bacteria gets stuck inside the toy. You can't mm -hmm. clean it. I know it's gross. And, <laughs> um, and the most important like thing I always tell people about sex toys is lube. Everybody, <laughs> lube, everybody. <Yeah. laughs> and like we have this idea that somehow using lube or using a sex toy makes us deficient in our natural ability to like give or like receive pleasure. And it's not true. It's just like, if you could have, you know, even more pleasure, like, wouldn't you want it? So lube creates like a better texture. It creates a more slippery, velvety experience experience if you're having penetrative or external uh, play on genitals. Um, and if, you're, if your partner is kind of shy about sex toys or if you think they're going to be intimidated, um, in there, there is a way to bring up a conversation about what you're curious about with a no obligation conversation. And so it's kind of just saying, hey, you know, I'm curious about this, or I saw this thing, or I watched Luna's webinar, and she was talking about this thing. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever considered this? Because that allows someone to also get into their own feels about 
previous experiences or whatever shame they have around sex toys. And it also gives them permission to do a little bit of research if they want to. So you could do it really cute and really fun and be like, you know, babe, like I want to gift you something for Valentine's Day. I thought it would be fun to like look at sex toys together. Why don't you pick something out that you want to use on me and I'll pick something out that I want to use on you. And so having this like set date where you're both trying out things and you can start with simple things like you know, it doesn't have, you don't have to go out and buy like a whips and chain set. Like, <laughs> Going from a zero to a hundred real quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like sex toys are also massage gloves. Sex toys are also, you know, body, body oil candles, like, or cock rings or, um, so there's so many different ways that, that we can use these, like they're called toys for a reason to get more like playfulness in our, mm-hmm. in our sex life. So it's, it's okay to be intimidated, but to let that intimidation kind of stop you from using things that gives your partner pleasure that's that's really a miss on both your parts yeah and I think you've said it earlier it's like if we can seek out more pleasure then why not yeah go for it yeah if there's another way to be turned on I want to (laughs) know I'm definitely not the right person to tell you those ways (laughs) be like Luna have you tried tugging on your ear I'll be like I don't know I mean, hey, certain touches, if they're light enough, they can be sensual. <laughs> right? Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think, I, yeah, I, I definitely come from, I come from it from a side of just like being shy and not even knowing how to have these conversations. Um, but I think that falls back on the fact that if you are comfortable with yourself, with your body, and you're comfortable with your partner, um, and Specifically, like if you are comfortable with your partner, you can have these conversations and not to kind of shy away, but come from it from a point of, uh, I think the no obligation, you've summed it up perfectly, that you're not expecting anything from your partner. You're like, hey, let's just try this out. If it's not cool for you, we're going to stop it. We'll just stop. Um, but yeah, just being open and like opening, open to having those conversations and then you as a partner to receiving that conversation right? To be listening to your partner and to be validating what their needs are and seeing if there's a way that you can meet their needs or if there's a compromise that you both can agree upon. Yeah. It's totally okay to be like, I need to think about it. Or, you know, thanks for sharing that. I need to think about it. Um, and it's also okay. I love what you said. It's, it's okay to, you know, feel awkward as fuck. Like these are awkward as fuck conversations and, and yeah. sex, that doesn't mean that it's any less sexy. I think the communication itself that it's happening is what's sexy. If it's awkward, that's adorable. If it's silly, you know, that's fun. And don't we want mm-hmm. adorable and fun in our, in our like sexual experiences? Yeah, there are moments that you can laugh back at. Like, remember when we were just like talking about like introducing sex toys and you laughed at me and you spilled like water down your shirt? <laughs> like, these are conversations you can have. Or these are like moments you can remember of like how awkward you were. And then looking at your journey months later or years later and you're like, look how far we've come. Yeah, as you stand behind your wall of sex toys. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the shelf, the yeah. shelf of toys. Yeah, I think I pointed out if uh, anyone who is watching on video, uh, Luna has some lovely items on her shelf. <laughs> I do. Uh, <laughs> I can't really see it properly. I just see that there are toys. But for, um, would you like to describe them to our listeners? Oh, sure. So there's one giant pink dildo. Um, and that one I use, it's a very phallic shaped dildo. So I often use it to talk about penis pleasure anatomy. Uh, and the other one's a vulva puppet. It's a pink vulva puppet. So I also use that to show vulva and vaginal and clitoral anatomy. And then the other one is um, a giant butt. It's a, a silicone butt that I use yep. when teaching anal sex. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, there's, any- Yara. there's my thinking tiara. That's what I put it on when I have to write articles. <laughs> <laughs> just the contrast there i know <laughs> yeah and for anyone who is listening or watching um and you would like to know learn more uh luna has a wonderful youtube channel that you can visit and we'll be sure to drop the link uh in our description as well for you folks to check out and to learn more um but are there any takeaways or three big takeaways that you'd like for our listeners to have um after having this conversation with you or hearing this conversation Hmm. Um. Yeah. I think. I think one big one is that you are enough. Like whatever body you're in right now, whatever um, level of sexual experience, whatever dynamic, like you are are 100 enough. Like there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing 
busted. If you hold any shame, that shame was all learned. And so anything that you're not feeling enough about, like somebody taught us that. And so the beauty of that is that we can unlearn it and um, connecting to your, your sexuality. Like the second thing, I think connecting to your sexuality doesn't have to happen with anybody else. It can happen with only you. And um, I mean, through masturbation, but even through examining your standards of attractiveness, um, looking at shame that you hold about your own feelings of sexiness, um, noticing ways in which you are represented in the things that that you like to do and then curating your content so that you are seeing social media you are seeing porn that is more representative of the kind of sexy that you already embody that's already there um and then i think the third thing is staying curious like really getting out there and yeah head over to my youtube channel there's lots of other educators doing stuff too um because the kind of stuff that we're getting from our uh, public healthy kind of systems is great. I mean, you do need to learn about sexually transmitted infections. And um, in Toronto, we're really lucky. We have public health clinics, but we also have the hassle-free clinic, um, which is right downtown. And that's a really great place to go if you want to feel included, if you want to feel like a non-judgmental space where you can anonymously get tested and get information about, that's where I get tested. Um, and and I think just being like a really strong advocate for uh, rejecting you know, the anything that doesn't serve us, instead of contorting, editing, and taming ourselves to fit that, let's reject it. And let's be like, no, like that's not the kind of sexy that like I want, or mm, no, that's not the kind of sex that I think is is really good. And that comes with with a, a kind of a practice of confidence over time. I mean, at first it's really hard because it's all around us and our partners are reinforcing it to us. And we often get gaslighted around like, well, no, yeah. you should be doing this. And like, you know, and um, so if you find any resistance in yourself or you find it really hard to do this, that's real. And it doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. It just means that you're you're actually doing the work that is making you uncomfortable with letting go of somebody else's validation and like getting back into connection with your own. I'm just gonna let that sink in for everyone just to process those, those pearls of wisdom, those gems. Um, and I, I like how it all falls back and all but some of your work falls back on just like rejecting the systems in place. I know that you've created uh, Peg the Patriarchy. Would you like to expand on what that brand or what that what that is? Yes, yes. Oh my God, that's my baby. And uh, <laughs> I see it everywhere now and I'm like, <laughs> like it's so cool to that it's out there. It's like this meme. Um, I love the name, by the way. I have you? the peg the patriarchy, and then the meditate, medicate, and masturbate. Oh, I love the alliteration of those. Oh my god, this is so Yeah, <laughs> that's my that's my jam. Alliteration. Um, a peg the patriarchy. I I created because I wanted something to um, sort of reflect my interest in both equity and and sexiness and sexuality, and so peg the patriarchy kind of represents this subversion of the system. And so it's not really about pegging. So pegging is a, a sexual fantasy act, right? About like someone strapping it on and having anal sex with somebody else. But it's more about the the in itself. Pegging could be in, in a sexual way, can be um, playing with gender fuckery, playing with power. But in the, the metaphor of peg the patriarchy, it's about subverting the existing system. So I don't want to be part of the existing system. I'm not interested in being included. I want the system to decimate. And, and I want us to build a system that is more equitable. I really think that there's a lot of like inclusion, diversity kind of stuff that's still asking me to conform to standards of white supremacy and patriarchy. And so Peg the Patriarchy is like, burn it down, fuck it up, you know, <laughs> like, let's start over. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, creating more of like an equ equitable society. For you, what does that look like? Yeah, it looks like not being just brought to somebody else's table, but being allowed to set up my own table, like metaphorically, um, and <laughs> not having to play by these rules. And I'll give you a very simple example, because I'm so bitter about 
now. But, um, you know, on Instagram, because I'm a fat plus size queer person of color, then I, I have to behave in a certain way because the patriarchy is in the algorithm. And so as soon as like yeah. you know, white cis het men, they get upset that I'm taking up space in this body, it's real easy for them to report me and have my account taken down. So the same thing doesn't happen for people who look um, and behave in ways that are actually more conducive to, to patriarchy. So um, I think like having this, um, you know, burn it down and build it back up would really require us to examine a lot of our biases, a lot of our um, intersectional understandings of things um, and really, not necessarily going towards a like a, a plateau we're not like trying to get to a destination but we're trying to develop a, a different practice that doesn't include a lot of the assumptions around gender around sexuality around bodies um that we have right now so i don't know exactly what it would look like i just know that it doesn't look like this <laughs> <laughs> i know it doesn't look like me not being able to wear the clothes that that i want to wear it doesn't look like me you know trying to find like a shade of makeup that matches you know my skin yeah. Yeah. like fuck like why is this still a thing like why like yeah. it's like the the first hint of beige it's like oh that's as far as our skin line will go yeah yeah like it's just and there's a it's that's where we start to also see that the values are are so heavily embedded and it's not just about you and i want to buy like we want to throw money at this and we can't because they don't have the things that that we want so um it's more than just being capitalist like it really is about like keeping us in a feeling of not feeling enough exactly um i'm curious to get your thoughts i know that we've talked about creating spaces for uh, QT BIPOC folks. And I feel that a lot of people who identify as QT BIPOC, they're okay with having these conversations. They're aware that these issues already exist. But for someone who is like a cis white male, and this is something that they're discovering for the first time, um, what, like, like, how can we better educate someone who identifies as like a cis white male rec uh, to get them to recognize like, hey, these things that you're doing, you have the privilege to do this and you need to recognize that like, hey, you have the privilege here and others don't. How can we get someone um, of that identity to kind of like open their mind and expand their their knowledge a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think there's. There's something to be said about like when we talk about allies that that we're not really looking for allies like I'm looking for people who understand that you know their freedom is inherently bound up with mine and that these systems hurt us all. They're hurting us in different ways, but I mean, toxic masculinity that goes through patriarchy isn't just owned by cishet white men. I mean, there's lots of toxic masculinity amongst um, QT BIPOC um, men as well and mask people. And and so we can we can kind of see that if we, we start to educate on how, you know, patriarchy has no gender. This isn't, when I say patriarchy, mm -hmm. it isn't interchangeable with like cis men or men. And um, when we understand that it hurts us in, in ways that we can't can't express the range of motion that emotions that we would like to we can't wear the things we demonize the feminine and so you know mm -hmm. a, a man a cis white man can't like wear a skirt and feel you know comfortable and safe and so they are also participating in the system because it keeps them safer and and it keeps them um and, and i'm using air quotes because it, it doesn't actually but they're they're told that if they participate in the system in this way that they will get mm -hmm. the kinds of things that they need and and it doesn't end up it doesn't end up working out that way <laughs> so mm -hmm. i think bringing them into conversations and also reminding um reminding them that it is it's uncomfortable when when your privilege is being pointed out and it's uncomfortable because that privilege has been invisible and so we we have to have some empathy for that there is a learning curve for people that have always just been at the top of the pile that yeah. now they're kind of like oh wait i'm not actually at the top of the pile like you know there's there's um there's a, an, an equity process that I think has to happen there that doesn't happen through things like cancel culture. It doesn't happen through, you know, kind of like violence. And, um, but we also need to see a buy-in. We need to, to see a buy-in from um, cishet white men and that they would also like to see a world where, you know, masculinity isn't so narrowly defined. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
and you touched upon cancel culture and I have my personal thoughts on cancel culture, whether it's effective or whether it's ineffective, but I feel that most folks can agree that this is a term that should probably, probably be coined differently, but instead of cancel culture, use it as like an educational moment. So like educate culture, right? Because folks are trying to find little things or big, depending on what the person has done or not done uh, to cancel that person, to ruin their reputation without really, like it becomes to the point where the person who gets canceled, they don't recognize what they've done wrong and they'll continue to do what is said wrong because they don't know why it's wrong or what they've done incorrectly. Um, because everyone on social media is like blasting them and hashtag cancel or like hashtag uh, so-and-so is over party um, without really using it as a learning opportunity. And I'm like, hey, let's actually have this conversation. Let's be real. Let's bestow some wisdom upon this person so that they can become a better person, educate uh, the folks in their circles, because no doubt they probably have a position of power and they have conversation with similar like-minded folks. Um, so just like falling back and just educate, have that open discussion and being uh, receptive to those conversations that they're having with you. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I agree. I think, um, and I think there's, there's some, I agree with everything you said. And I, I think there's some um, nuances around like, well, who has to do that education? And like, at yeah. what age is that? Are you entitled to that education? And I think we saw with like the Me Too movement, um, you know, very quickly, like it turned into, oh, but like, we need to like have empathy for like these men that need to learn. But it wasn't the time. It wasn't no. the time. I think like once we just started listening to, to survivors, like we just this moment started listening to survivors. So they need to have their moment too. And there also mm -hmm. is grieving. And there's like this loss of, um, you know, sort of the whatever they were holding on to while they weren't being listened to. And so I think it's really important, like when we start to to think about where the responsibility lies, that it doesn't fall on the people who are most raw in that moment. So I feel like, you know, we uh, like as a cis person, I think when I see trans um, activism going on and like, I need to go get my cis people. I need to go and be like, hey, like, this is what, you know, we need to know. And like, here's where we mm -hmm. need to listen instead of expecting trans people to do that for, for other cis people. Um, if they if they want to, then great. Like there are people who want to kind of like go into things, but I don't think it should be an expectation. Definitely not because it can be emotionally exhausting to constantly trying to tell people your story or to bring up your past trauma, your past traumas into those conversations. Totally. Um, and um, I think there was someone who had said this recently where even if someone is in a position where they can educate, they have educated in the past, you shouldn't expect it from them all the time, right? They have their moments where they want to share, they want to be open and they have some moments where they're like, no, I'm too emotionally exhausted, I can't participate in this conversation, it's too much. So let them have their space, let them recover and support them in those times, right? Don't rely upon them solely as your your wheelhouse of information. Oh, that's so kind. Yeah. Yeah. I think I get that a lot. People will tag me and like, this company stole this from this person and like, blah, blah, blah. and I was like, I, I'm not on Instagram all the time. <laughs> like, I also need mm. to shit and eat and shower, you know, like this is like mm. we got our needs to take care of. So yeah, I love that. I love the idea of like, you know, rotating leadership and, and also rotating energy and thinking about um, our own needs in this. It's also okay if we don't call out every single thing. If we don't, I tend to not, um, I don't offer a lot of courses that are specifically designed for men. Um, and people often ask me if men come to my classes, like men of all genders. And um and I'm like, no, like uh, actually they're, they're coming more now that it's online, but in person, mm -hmm. I wasn't getting a lot of men. And um, that was okay with me because I was like, well, you come, I want people in the room who have a desire to learn. And so me chasing after a group of people that really nothing in society is provoking them to learn anything um, is exhausting for me. It's ex and it's dangerous. As soon as I start talking about toxic masculinity on Instagram, I get reported, I get like death threats, I get like all these other kinds of things. So I also get to choose where I feel safe advocating. 
Exactly. Do you feel that um, your engagement with folks in your workshops has changed since the shift online? Um, yeah, and I'm lucky. I, I really like being online. I like not having to wear heels. I like not standing <laughs> for hours. Like, I like mm. traveling. Um, and, and I think it's given people an opportunity to be more anonymous and um, just kind of be on their screen and like take in what I have. It's also given me the opportunity to reach people in areas that I couldn't reach before. Not everyone is as lucky as Toronto and, and has like two sex positive you know, feminist shops, like most people don't have that. Um, there's only about like six in Canada. So um, wow. I've had people tune in from Ireland, Australia, like all over the US, all over Canada. And so it's really cool to also hear about regional struggles or like um, how um, sex negativity is in a different geographic context. So I've done a lot of learning through it too. Yeah, it's learning. It's a process for both the person who is bestowing the wisdom and also the person who is receiving. It's yeah. not like a one-way transfer of information. It's two ways. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then kind of just to wrap up the, the conversation about like education and cancel culture, um, I, I like how you brought in that we shouldn't be relying on folks who um, have a particular identity to educate us we also shouldn't be inserting ourselves into those conversations in terms of accepting the apologies, right? Because oftentimes if uh, a celebrity were to be canceled and they apologize, but it's not meant for us, we shouldn't be like, oh yeah, they apologize, it's all good. It's like, no, that's not, it's not our place to accept that apology. Oh my God, I hate seeing that on Twitter. <laughs> like, I'm like, it's not- I see it all the time. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel like it's, um, we, if we don't belong to that, that marginalized identity, the identity that's, that's in um, like at the center of things, it just like, we just need to tap out. Like it's not, <laughs> we, we need to support the communities and whether or not they reject the apology or they accept it. Yeah. Cause I, a lot of, it's, it's funny to see like the contrast where for something like the, the me too movement, it was very much like, listen to the victims, hear their stories, support them. But if it's something like your favorite celebrity has done blackface, it's like, oh, no, but it's fine. They didn't know. Like, you're making so many more excuses and you're defending them as opposed to the actual victims in this particular situation just because you have a personal connection with the, the party. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's sort of we're prioritizing something that that we like and we don't want to believe is. And and I mean the thing is too, it it falls into your your points about cancel culture is like, well, this person is also human, and so they get to be flawed and then have to go through a process where they become account accountable for those flaws. So you can still like them, but there's you can't use your bias of of having an affinity for them to like override mm -hmm. the fact that they need to be accountable. Exactly. <laughs> okay, I know that like I kind of I pivoted that conversation uh, quite a bit, um, but hopefully this was interesting to to listen to and to kind of engage with. Um, but for our folks who have made it towards or to the end of this episode, um, and no doubt they have probably fallen in love with Luna and everything that she's done, um, how can folks better connect with you or uh, keep up with the work that you're doing? Yeah, I'm so sorry. There's like a garbage truck outside now. That's <laughs> so good that we're like wrapping up. Um, you can find me. The best way is, is probably through my website. So lunamatadas.com, like Hakuna Matadas, but Luna Matadas. Um, oh, I like that. <laughs> thank you. Um, or you can find me. I think Twitter is is probably better than Instagram. I feel like come December 20th, like so many of us are just going to be deleted from Instagram. So um, if you want, um, if you're while you're on my website to sign up for my newsletter I do giveaways and I love my newsletter subscribers get the best treatment because I, I love this community of, of people that I have and um, there's so much sex censorship for sex educators that it's really hard to keep our communities um, yeah yeah those are the places where you can best find me I have tons of live webinars coming up uh, January February and there's about 30 on-demand webinars on my website right now Cool. Okay. So for anyone who's interested, definitely sign up. Um, and yeah, so I would like to thank you, Luna, for coming on to our podcast. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, sharing your experiences with, with us and with the listeners. We really do appreciate having you on. 
Um, and yeah, for everyone who has made it towards the end of this episode, thank you so much for listening. And we hope to see or to hear from you again in the next episode. Take care.